Welcome to RPM, the podcast that explores the world of private markets. I'm your host, Graziella Scassillo. Many of the direct and indirect effects of the war materialized quickly. To name a few, the diaspora of Ukrainians across the globe and allegations of war crimes, as well as volatile markets for key commodities, including oil, natural gas, wheat and potash. However, the implications for portfolios and private markets are perhaps less clear. Joining me today to address some of the questions LPs may have is Christian Fry, Stepson Partner and Head of Risk. Christian, I would say welcome back to RPM because this is not your first time here, right? Hello, Graciela. Glad to be back on RPM. Yes, you're correct. Uh, we've been talking uh, about the COVID uh, impact on private markets, but also about strategic asset allocation together on RPM. Yes. Now, in one of your presentations to us, it became clear that the crisis in Ukraine has taken a more negative turn than most of us have hoped. In general, were you surprised by the event? So the potential of an escalation of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine has been uh, somewhat on our radar as part of the risks on our geopolitical landscape as part of our regular outlook. However, like probably most of us, um, we didn't give it a high likelihood or assumed it would be certainty. Um, and so as such, geopolitical risks are difficult to assess in terms of the likelihood as well as their uh, implications. What we typically you know, recommend is to keep diversified Uh, portfolios to be uh, not exposed disproportionately to such single events. When it became clear that things could take a more negative turn, what did we do? So when thinking about risk and, and risk management, it always starts with understanding what your exposures are. And for that purpose, Stepson has built um, a set of tools that allows us to understand exposures, not just of our portfolios that we manage, uh, but also uh, portfolios we oversee and more broadly across the industry. And so already before the invasion, we use these tools to screen assets that are located in Ukraine and Russia, and later also uh, Belarus. And in general, what we found is that there's, you know, only marginal exposure uh, to these country. And the reason is probably that um, it takes typically specialized GPs that are active uh, in these, these countries. But risks doesn't stop at borders. And so to fully understand exposures to the conflict, um, we had to have a closer look at individual assets and ask how they might um, you know, derive revenues from these, this region or how uh, they might be affected by having operations um, or staff Um, on the ground in the countries. And as you can imagine, this is a slightly more difficult task to, to do because you need to understand the details of a business or an asset. Well, considering this second step and starting with the corporate world, where did the teams focus their attention to? So on the corporate side, the focus was on companies with revenue derived from the region, uh, companies which use inputs uh, from the region, as well as companies with operations on the ground in either uh, of the countries. Where companies derive revenues from the regions, if any, 
these were typically or typically in the single digit to you know low teens percentage points of total uh, revenue but even you know not all revenue um is equally um at risk uh, to be affected so for example medical or pharmaceutical products are you know currently exempt from sanctions but even this exemption might have uh, impacts on the business as there are um certain shipping companies uh, that stop um, delivering or uh, shipping to uh, the region and so even if maybe your product is not sanctioned you nevertheless might face um, challenges um shipping your products to uh, the region so you know that requires close monitoring um, anyway then on uh, the input side um you know energy is certainly um in the first place uh, to look and up to now you know gas has been uh, flowing to the western uh, or western europe more or less freely um businesses like you know chemicals or utilities have you know mainly been impacted by higher energy prices not by uh, disruptions uh, but given the recent steps by russia or plans of the eu to potentially get off russian energy um, completely uh, that definitely um represents a certain risk uh, for these uh, businesses as well and when it comes to operations on the ground um, you know companies are facing you know two types of challenges on on the one side um trying to avoid uh, business interruptions but then on the other side as well uh, caring for their um staff and making sure they're um safe and ukraine is you know well trained it professionals um and so if we think about operations on at the ground um that could include um, IT companies which is maybe not something that would one would think of um, in the first place in general i think these uh, you know thoughts uh, illustrate that you know risk doesn't stop at the border so even if you don't have um, your domicile in either of these countries um, you can be negatively um, affected of course by the crisis Thank you Christian. And if we want to move also to real assets, would you mind sharing some thoughts on the challenges companies are facing in this asset class as well? In the review the real asset team has paid special attention to assets related to air travel as well as assets located in neighboring countries. And so if you think about airports can be affected in in multiple uh, ways, so historically leisure travel behavior has been affected by uh, conflicts um as travel destinations have changed or trips might have been canceled um outright and airports that you know depend heavily on routes uh, through uh, Russia or Ukraine airspace might experience additional um, headwind there's you know passenger um flow or passenger volume uh, decreased and you know agriculture and food supply chains have been heavily impacted it's something that my colleague Ryan Ramsey uh, just discussed in a earlier podcast and so I don't want to uh, dig much deeper here on that aspect and what about the real estate asset class instead uh, generally what i hear from the real estate team is that it's very unusual for our clients or uh, the cheapies that they track to have exposure uh, to real estate in Russia or Ukraine uh, for a host of reasons um and that's also what we saw when we you know checked our um, exposures uh, they did uh, also 
do a deeper analysis on um, asset level with the focus on uh, identifying projects that might face uh, delays uh, due to supply uh, chain issues uh, as a result of the conflict. Um, but there's you know hardly any um, impact there as well. And what you know GP's uh, report is that you know the Central European real estate market is uh, not really affected by this crisis. So now, Christian, can you explain how you assess your indirect exposure to the conflict? So the global economy has already been suffering supply side constraints before the invasion and the disruptions um, that we see uh, resulting from that conflict only intensify that pressure. So the broadest indirect impact will be coming through higher energy and commodity prices feeding into higher inflation. This will on the one side erode uh, purchasing power, but on the other side, higher inflation will also increase the pressure on central banks to hike interest rates. And given that the seeds for uh, higher inflation have been planted already during uh, the pandemic with these uh, generous fiscal uh, stimuli and loose monetary policy, I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to actually assess even the impact of this crisis alone. It's also not the first time that we talk about uh, inflation uh, and input price pressure. Uh, you might recall uh, our podcast in July last year where Tom Keck had talked about the topic and he had elaborated um, on the need to focus on businesses that have the power to pause inflation or increased input prices through to um, the customers. Below the surface, or below the inflation surface, however, some segments of the economy uh, will be much more impacted than others. Uh, this is particularly because Ukraine and Russia are dominant producers in some key commodities more than others. And in some ways, infrastructure um, is benefiting from these, these trends. For utilities, high inflation often boosts revenue um, and subsequently uh, value as they typically have indirect pass-through of inflation in their you know, rate-making uh, mechanisms. Increased energy prices for a longer period of time can provide positive asset valuation impact on midstream assets as well as on power-generating assets. And transportation assets, uh, there's also often an inflation component in underlying contracts that can result in enhanced um, revenues. And then, you know, we have agriculture, which um, also benefits from inflationary environment. Um, again, there's something Ryan Ramsey already talked about um, in his podcast, and I'll not spend more time uh, here. Real estate, in contrast, so despite um, long-term also being protective against inflation, has been experienced negative impact from market trends already before uh, the invasion in the context of a generally healthy real estate market. So, you know, dramatically rising construction costs uh, due to supply chain issues, labor issues, uh, and robust demand meant that you know fewer new development projects uh, were economical. And uh, these conditions also have made it difficult to secure uh, fixed price uh, construction contracts. And on the interest rate 
uh, side, you know, uh, particularly in the US where, you know, the US central bank has started to raise interest rate. And this also, you know, means that very high levered buyers, um, which have been prevalent in the market, are less common and um, therefore marginal prices are uh, coming down. But I think it's interesting um, if we look through these different um, parts of uh, the economy and, and see how they are affected differently, some more positive, uh, some uh, maybe slightly negative. I think it's a very nice way of actually showing or demonstrating diversification in a different way um, in a multi-asset portfolio at work. Given the recent increased volatility in public markets, what should investors expect from private markets? There are a couple of aspects to be considered. So first, private market valuation reacts lower to dislocations than prices of traded assets. So it indeed makes sense to ask the question what liquid markets might signal for private markets. Um, second, and, and we've talked about this aspect um, at the onset of the uh, COVID crisis in one of our webcasts, when, when measured peak to trough, private markets um, only capture a fraction of the downside of listed, listed assets. In you know, past analyses, we found that private equity captures in the range of 50 to 60% of a downside um, of listed equity uh, indices. And similarly for private debt, one can show that you know, market value uh, declines are by about a factor of five you know, bigger or larger than subsequent um, credit losses. That's actually something I've talked about in a recent webcast for our StepStone clients, where I was focusing on the impact of uh, the crisis uh, on private debt specifically. And considering these characteristics, private market allocation can have a, an important stabilizing role in portfolios. Will private companies that generally have more leverage suffer more from the downturn? in the economies they participate in? I think absolute leverage numbers are only one side of the coin. I think we must also take into account that GPs tend to be very active shareholders, so they can push management to take corrective actions. They can also provide um, financing to make it through a rough patch and capture opportunities uh, in turbulent, turbulent times. And if it is needed, they can even uh, change um, management where necessary. And in general, they can you know, react uh, quickly. Actually, you know, if we look at uh, the COVID uh, crisis, uh, this uh, episode provided, uh, you know, provided ample good examples of active, of the active roles of, of GPs and, and not just as sponsors, but also as, as lenders helping, um, you know, manage companies through difficult times. So now, Christian, putting that crisis to the side for a minute, besides supply chain disruption and interest rates that you've just mentioned, what other risks are investors worried about? So the, the war has indeed moved certain topics into the background. Um, first and foremost, uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, while in the Western economies, we're you know, accustomed to be almost back to normal, um, this is not necessarily the case everywhere. And in particular, thinking about uh, China, um, it seems that their 
in a particularly uncomfortable uh, spot as they you know, try to maintain, maintain their zero COVID uh, policy. And partially related to that, you know, we have the supply chain uh, constraints. Uh, coming into 2022, there were positive signs that some supply chain issues would ease, uh, for example, in the semiconductor space. Um, however, with some suppliers um, of consumer and intermediate goods and forced to regular shutdowns of at least parts of their economies, um, we think that you know, supply chain issues might persist longer than um, originally hoped. Another challenge seems uh, to persist in the U.S. labor market, where it's harder and harder to find um, staff in recent weeks and, and where uh, wages um, are increasing. And aside from these short-term worries, there are also longer-term economical um, ESG or geopolitical issues that bear um, certain risk. And most of them uh, we've already featured on our um, regular um, outlook, so they're not necessarily new. Um, on the economic side, these are demographics and deglobalization and their respective impact on productivity and longer-term inflation. On the ESG front, uh, I can think of climate change and raising inequality, which are important challenges to be addressed. I mean, both, if left unaddressed, have the potential to haunt us uh, in the future. And finally, uh, on the geopolitical side, um, the most obvious question, you know, in the current context is, you know, how China is positioning itself vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Uh, but then we also have the unresolved disputes uh, with Iran and North Korea. And uh, finally, Christian, please give us some good news. Do you think that we'll face a recession? Trying to call recessions has always been a tricky exercise, and this time around it's probably even more challenging. And I'm saying this because there's a number of variables and moving parts um, which are to some degree even interdependent. Starting with the conflict itself, um, we don't know what decisions the warring parties uh, will take, and in particular what decisions Russia will take. Um, and that, of course, has profound implications for the duration of the conflict. But then there's also the response of not directly involved nations. Um, first and foremost, in terms of sanctions, um, if we think about plans of EU to get off uh, Russian energy supply, that will you know, definitely have negative implications for uh, the European economy. But then there's, as mentioned above or earlier, the, the COVID um, situation. COVID is still out there and, as it seems, um, affects negatively China and supplies out of China in particular. And so there's a lot of uncertainty um, to deal with. And uncertainty in general um, tends to slow down economic activity. But then there's uh, the inflationary pressure and the question of you know, how uh, central banks react to it. The fact that you know, the current inflation has demand side as well as supply side, a component you know, greatly complicates the job of central banks, in, in my view. And when they you know, try to withdraw the extraordinary measures that basically have been in place for um, a decade. So with all these different uh, decisions, there's actually a broad set of scenarios one can uh, envision. And, and so that's why I'm saying, I think it's 
probably particularly difficult this time to call recessions. I think what I probably feel comfortable saying is that Europe definitely has the higher risk of ending up in a recession uh, than uh, the US. However, you know, that might uh, end. That's that. So we believe that it's difficult to call recessions and tie markets and that's specifically true for private markets. And so we think the best way um, to deal with this is to stay course and follow you know, the longer term um, plan uh, that one has. That doesn't mean that you know, there are uh, or wouldn't exist pockets of relative value or opportunities that can be exploited on the short run. But we think uh, this shouldn't turn an asset allocation plan upside down. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Graziella. It was again a pleasure to be on RPM with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of RPM. If you enjoyed it, please visit our show page at www.stepstonegroup.com, where you can find other episodes and research on parent markets. You can also subscribe to RPM on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. Bye.